Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you for listening to the best of Julia Hartley Brewer. Don't forget to catch me live tomorrow morning from 6.30 on DAB, Smart Speaker and online at talkradio.co.uk. Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer and The Times. Be well informed. Well, let's uh, talk about what's happening today with the Prime Minister. He's going to be joined by David Attenborough to launch the International uh, Climate Summit. It's the 26th United Nations Climate Conference, COP26, due to take place in Glasgow in November. And uh, a number of announcements that are going to affect uh, drivers. Yes, from 2035, it will be the case that we will uh, ban the sale of petrol and diesel vehicles. So we're going electric. And you're also going to be banning the sale of hybrid vehicles as well. Why hybrid vehicles? I thought they were supposed to be better for us. Well, they are if uh, you are uh, using them in order to travel uh, using electricity. But the whole point about a hybrid vehicle is that you can switch between those modes. So while uh, properly used, I mean, you know, they're great. And I've, I've um, uh, used hybrid cars in the past. Properly used, they're, they're, it's appropriate. But the key thing is if we're going to make the full transition to fully electric vehicles, then we need to lean in, and that's what the government is doing. But isn't it the case that manufacturers are gradually moving away from these vehicles anyway? And, and actually, you don't need to bring in a government ban on these things because the, these cars aren't going to be sold anymore. You're right, um, but that's why the government needs to work with the private sector. So the, the best thing is government lays down a target, um, says this is what's required for um, environmental and for that matter for air quality reasons as well and then the private sector says right sleeves rolled up we will meet that challenge okay but i do want to come on to some criticism of, of uh, boris johnson this role but, but a lot of a lot of people will be concerned that it's all very well it all sounds very good but we are talking about a major change to the infrastructure of our, our cities our towns our roads I, mean, I live in a flat I, I, at the back of the house I, nowhere i can charge my vehicle are we going to have charging points everywhere along the road and who on earth's going to pay for that other than taxpayers and how much is it going to cost us? Uh, yes, we will have more charging points. Two, it will be paid for because, uh, uh, you know, essentially electricity, like any form of uh, fuel, power or energy, is something that we all have to pay for. No, and who's thirdly, going to pay for the infrastructure? We are talking about billions upon billions and billions of pounds. It's going to come out of taxes. You're going to have to raise our taxes to do this, aren't you? Well, there are. it's already the case that in order to make sure that we... 
uh, effectively um, uh, pay for uh, both our road infrastructure and for the environment, that people are taxed by uh, uh, the duty on petrol and on diesel. People are taxed through uh, uh, their uh, uh, road um, uh, taxes like uh, uh, the, the, the license for any car. Um, it is the case that we need to make sure that we have a more rational approach towards uh, uh, supporting mm. transport it- and and electric uh, um, vehicles and the appropriate infrastructure will ensure that energy is cheaper, cleaner and safer. Okay, so we're, we're going <coughs> to go all electric in 15 years' time, pretty much. Yep. What's the cost of that? I've asked you a couple of times because this is a major policy change. A lot yes. of people who still have older cars, people can't move away from a diesel car or or a hybrid car to an electric car unless they've got somewhere to charge it. And I, you know, I've, most people probably got like maybe one, maybe at the end of their road. This is going to cost a lot of money to put their infrastructure in, and and I mean, we are again in the tens and tens of billions. How much is it going to cost and what are our taxes going to go up by? Because if you're not charging money for diesel and petrol vehicles anymore, and yes. for those, you're going to be charging it somewhere else. So how much is it going to cost us? Uh, the key thing, and I, I can't put a figure on this. So wait a minute, are you telling me we've got a government policy announcement that's been uncosted? No. This is very Corbynista, isn't it? No. Uh, the, the, uh, the point I'd make is that uh, over a 15-year period, we're going to phase out a particular type of vehicle and introduce another. It's already the case that we have but charging points in every new development, um, and they're going to become mainstream as a result. And who's going to pay for it? In some cases, it will be the developers who are responsible for those developments. And well, in some I, cases, I don't live. In, I, I like most people don't live in a new in a new street. I live in a street that's been there since 1880. So who's going to pay to have a charging point outside every single home in my street? And all the streets of people who are listening right now. I suspect there will be charging points in what used to be or what what will have used to have been the petrol station where you would currently get your petrol and diesel. I haven't got a petrol station within a mile or two of my home. How am I going to get my car there if I haven't got any charge in it? Well, it will. And have how been... long will it take me to charge up my electric vehicle? I'm just going to have to leave it there for overnight. I mean, how nope. many how many cars in my area do you think can go to the local petrol station and get charged up? As many as Has go there to get petrol at the moment. Yes, as many as currently go there to get petrol. But but you can get petrol in three minutes flat. You can't charge up an electric vehicle in three minutes flat. You'll be able to charge it much more quickly in the future. <laughs> I have a horrible feeling that this is policy that's being made on the hoof that's going to cost uh, the British taxpayer billions and billions and billions of pounds. And no one's actually thought it through because we're all making lovely gesture politics. No, I, I don't think it's the case that you would have companies like Nissan or Tesla investing in uh, uh, electric technology for vehicles if they thought that this was just a whimsy. No, I don't think it's a whimsy. I'm just simply saying that the, the, the move towards all electric vehicles is going to cost the taxpayer money and no one seems to be talking about that. Let, by all means, let's move to electric vehicles, but who's going to pay for the infrastructure to allow us to move to, to, to electric vehicles? And, and I've, I've got no answer. Uh, well, uh, ultimately, these things will be decided by uh, an interplay of market forces um, and. Uh, uh, but you've the cost decided of the policy without finding out what the cost would be and who'd pay well, for it. Julie, I don't think you could tell me what the cost of petrol is going to be in uh, 15 months' time, let alone 15 years' time. It's going to so be cheaper than putting an electric charging point outside every home in the country. I'll tell you that. Can you be certain of that? Yes. Thank you very much for joining us, Michael Gove. Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, former Environment Secretary as well. Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer. Weekday mornings from 6.30 on Talk Radio. Well, let's talk to the former independent reviewer of anti-terrorism legislation, uh, Lord Carlyle, who joins us now. Good morning to you, Lord Carlyle. 
Good morning. Um, big concern, of course, over this legislation from many has been the fact that it may well not be legal to introduce legislation that affects uh, the uh, 220, we believe, jihadist uh, uh, people who have been currently behind bars in current in Britain, British jails who could now see their sentences lengthened by a large number of years. Is it legal to effectively post-date legislation like this and extend people's sentences? Well, it may be legal and it may not be legal, but there will certainly be a challenge through the courts that has already been signalled by the uh, civil rights organisation Liberty. Uh, and such a challenge through the courts could take many months. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that the government obtained quite the level of legal advice they needed before making the announcement yesterday, particularly as there are other ways of dealing with the problem of people currently serving sentences, which might include the reintroduction of the control order system or the beefing up of the TPIN system, which exists at the moment and replaced control orders in 2011. But Alan, the general view seems to be that TPIMs aren't working um, and also they had to replace control orders because of, once again, legal challenges to control orders. Uh, no, they didn't have to replace control orders. I was independent reviewer of terrorism legislation at the time and advised yeah. against it. Control orders had been held repeatedly to be legal and were going through an efficient court process. It was a political decision by the coalition government in response to civil liberties concerns that TPIMs are too dilute a version of control orders. They're not working, therefore they've hardly been used. Um, I don't mind very much whether they reintroduce control orders or make TPIMs the equivalent of the old control orders, but they would provide a much more certain and less challengeable system than what has been proposed yesterday. Um, explain to my listeners uh, right now what, what, what reintroducing control orders would actually mean. So someone, say like Sudesh Aman, uh, comes out of prison, they, uh, they're released, whether it's halfway or 18 months in or the full three-year, four months of their sentence, and they're released from prison. What happens to them under these control orders that isn't happening to them right now? Right. Well, an assessment would have to be made as to whether they were dangerous, plainly they were, or potentially dangerous. Plainly, there was plenty of evidence that he was. Um, the Home Secretary would then make a control order, which would require um, the person concerned to be subject to up to 23 different controls, which include relocation, um, long uh, curfews, including during the daytime, limitation on the use of computers and mobile telephony so they could be tracked and checked um, uh, and uh, permission only to see a list of people which would exclude contact with um, former radicalised friends and colleagues. It worked well. I went to visit a number of the people under control orders and there were actually few complaints from them. Well, they, they understood was, that this it was living under the control order or being in prison and this was better. No, it wasn't in prison at all. They were living in houses. Or no, 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 no. That's what I mean. That was they. They were. They were. They were not finding it uh, too, too, too much of an ordeal. I mean, this is the thing. If you want to, no, if they you were. want to go on the straight and narrow, if you don't want to be a jihadist, then then these are probably not that un, un, difficult uh, uh, provisions to actually accede to. Absolutely, um, and um, you know they were provided with places to live, which were pleasant and reasonably comfortable. They were able to work in certain circumstances. Um, some of them were living under control orders with their families around them, attending local schools. Um, it, 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 it's not comparable with being imprisoned. And, of course, it's up to them 
if they decide that they don't want to be involved in terrorism issues anymore and can persuade the authorities that that is their state of mind, then the control order will be brought to an end. There, there was a, something called the Control Order Review Group. I used to attend its meetings. It met monthly. It, it heard from the local community police officers, for example. So this was something that was reviewed on an ongoing basis and in an honest and honourable way. Do you think that currently, with or without this change in the legislation that's being proposed by the government, that we've got the balance right between the undoubted you know, difficulty of balancing up the, the right to, you know, to civil liberties, for people not to be locked up for something they have talked about doing as opposed to something they've actually tried to do or actually done, um, uh, and, and the freedom for people to you know, have freedom of speech, etc., versus the freedom to, for instance, walk along London Bridge or walk down Streatham High Street without being stabbed by a jihadist lunatic. I mean, there are, there are trailers because we can't lock up every single person who we believe may possibly have jihadist tendencies because that's 23,000 people. But, well, you're absolutely right. It is a balance. That means, of course, that it's a contextual issue. The weight on either side of the balance changes according to circumstances. Recently, we've had two dreadful events uh, one of which resulted in deaths, the other nearly resulted in deaths. And so we have to recalibrate that balance. At the moment, given the evidence of people um, leaving prison who remain radicalised and in some cases determined to carry out terrorism acts for whatever reason, then we have to readjust the measures that are available. I think the proposal for longer sentences, I think the proposal for involvement of the parole board are very sensible. But that doesn't deal with the immediate question of people being, resist, being released from current sentences. And that's what I'm trying to address by proposing control orders be restored. And I noticed from one or two of the broadsheets this morning that the government is considering that. Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer and The Times. Be well informed. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer. Weekday mornings from 6.30 on Talk Radio. A new report from Ofsted, Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary, uh, has uh, found that uh, children who are sexually abused by family members are going unseen and unheard by agencies who they say are woefully ill-equipped to deal with the issue. Well, this report came out alongside the Care Quality Commission and HM Inspector of Probation, and their ex report exposes a lack of knowledge and focus on abuse from all local agencies and say more needs to be done. Well, let's talk about all of this with Ofsted's Chief Inspector, Amanda Spielman, who joins us now. Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, what was why was there a decision to carry out a joint report in the first place? Um, 
The joint inspections that we do with the other inspectorates of health, police, probation cover our work in education and social care, all the themes where things actually cut across a number of services. This is, I think, the fifth we've done. And we've got a lot of common themes coming out of them. But this has been one of the, the very toughest because even talking about child sexual abuse um, at home, even though that's about two we think that's about two thirds of the abuse that happens, there's a giant taboo about talking about it in every society, every culture, there's a taboo about incest, even when it's also child rape. Um, so we're not good at picking up the signs. We're not good about talking about it when it happens. Um, we're not good at uh, dealing promptly um, when a child does disclose. Even where a police investigation starts, that tends to take precedence over doing anything else to support the child. And even when somebody has been convicted, um, by the time they come out, we have tend to see poor offender management. Um, people, women are being left trying to, trying to manage contact between, between an offender and the child, often women who've been abused themselves. So we've got a whole sort of chain where the pieces aren't joining up, people aren't talking, sharing the right information. So children aren't getting the help and protection they need and especially not getting it quickly. Well, we know that often it can be years before children will even come forward and, and tell the authorities. Uh, and, and then at that point, they're still being forced to wait to get any help. We understand often when there are cases that come to court and with criminal justice cuts we've seen uh, people often waiting a year or two to come to court children are often told they can't have any therapy until uh, they've gone to court and given evidence in case it sort of skews their witness statements indeed and um, the the prioritization of the the police investigation and the, and, and the prosecution and the priority that puts on on the abuser not on the child we have to find a way of making sure that the child's needs um get looked after and get looked after promptly because we do all want children to recover. Many people do recover even from terrible things happening to them in childhood, but we've got to give them the very best chance as well as doing everything we can to prevent this happening in the first place. Uh, why do you think this is happening? Because it, it, surely it can't be a lack of will. No no normal human being would, would want to leave a child in distress or, or, or often in the cases we, we actually do with a family member who is, who is accused of, of actually abusing them. And yet we hear again and again this is what is happening what why is this happening is it a lack of will a lack of resources a lack of understanding what's going on i think first and foremost there's a lack of desire to face this as a likely explanation so so for example one of the commonest um so the first sign of a child who's been abused is often the child themselves misbehaving showing signs of sex of sexual behaviour with others, often other children. And people don't necessarily ask, hang on, is this telling us something about what's happening to this child? Um, they tend to go straight down um, sort of behaviour management routes with the child instead of saying, might it link to something in the family? And of course, there's a, there's, there's a sort of great culture of secrecy. It's a taboo subject, sex between people who are closely related to each other, even when it's completely non-consensual. Um, so, so we're very, very reluctant um, to start talking about it and call it by its name. That's what I've been trying to do, is to say we, we've got to acknowledge what's here, not bury it under layers of euphemisms. But also a lot of people are just totally unwilling to also admit the scale of this issue. Isn't it thought that something like one in six adults will at some point have experienced some level of sexual abuse in their childhood? Um, and that it is invariably more likely to be someone who is close to them. Um, and, and yet people are just, you know, we, again, we just don't, you know, we, we turn the page. We, we, might, we might turn over to a music channel rather than listening uh, to, to this discussion on the radio because it's uncomfortable, it's difficult, we don't want our children to know about it. But actually it's something we do just need as a society to be more open about. Well, indeed. And 
you would you would have thought that the experience with the grooming gangs and the shutting down of discussion about that for slightly different reasons probably there but nevertheless that we would have recognized how dangerous it is dangerous it is to shut down these kinds of conversations so mm. i think this is this is a message to all the professionals involved um don't shut down the conversation don't be afraid to say what's actually happening don't put mm. it under a in, in, in into a sort of generic yeah. euphemistic term talk about what's actually happening to the child acknowledge whether it's an adult in the house a child in the house what their relationship is to the child get it out there but also I mean the role of other people who come into contact with those children whether it's the school nurse whether it's their yeah. teacher whether it's the other other parents of the, their friends um, I've interviewed an awful lot of, of, of adult victims of child abuse and they've talked about you know what happened and, and they every single one of them without an exception has said to me how did no one know? How did they not realise? I, you know, I was an outgoing child and, you know, confident. And then sort of overnight, I became withdrawn. My schoolwork was suffering uh, because obviously of the children, you can't concentrate at school. They're not sleeping at night. And, um, you know, they, they become withdrawn. They start having eating disorders, all of these things that they always have said to me, it was obvious that something bad had happened. And no one, I, either they didn't, weren't believed when they told or that no one even bothered asking them. What, what a role do the rest of us have if we are concerned about a child? Well, it's a collective role because there's no, there is no mechanism that we can absolutely guarantee will pack, will pick up something that is as shrouded in secret, secrecy as so much child abuse. It does need everybody around to be alert and to ask to ask themselves those questions because the the more people who are observant and and sort of pick up the possibility and talk to a colleague, talk to the child. Um, when, it, when, when it's sent right, right to do so, the more likely it is that things will surface. This is about increasing probabilities. It's not about making a cast iron promise. It would be, I, I, I wouldn't like any service to say it can guarantee, but increasing the chance that, that somebody will notice and that the child will find a way, a time to, to, to talk to somebody and to be believed when they do. Absolutely. Amanda Spillman, Elfstead Chief Inspector, thank you very much indeed uh, for talking to us. Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer and The Times. Be well informed. Thank you for listening to the best of Julia Hartley Brewer. Don't forget to catch me live tomorrow morning from 6.30 on DAB, Smart Speaker and online at talkradio.co.uk.